these kids just suddenly started being struck by this mysterious virus. They seemed to be like seriously ill, and it was only restricted to teens. The doctors were completely baffled, but then they realised just as this started, there'd been this soap opera called uh, Strawberries and Sugar in Portugal that had shown this mysterious virus attacking the, the kids in this teen drama. And it just seems that some, you know, maybe a couple of the teens had started to feel really anxious, and they became ill, and then it spread amongst all of their classmates and spread from school to school as the reports kind of hit the media. Hi guys and welcome to another load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. This week I'm talking expectation effects with the man who's written the definitive book on the subject, scientist and writer David Robson. We're going to talk about his fascinating book called The Expectation Effect, Why Overcomplicated Title, and how our brain plays rather clever games with us. A little more about my guest David. After graduating with a degree in maths from Cambridge University, he worked as a features editor at New Scientist before moving to the BBC. His writing has also appeared in The Guardian, The Atlantic, Men's Health and many more places. In 2021, David received awards from the Association of British Science Writers and the UK Medical Journalists Association for his writing on misinformation and risk communication during the Covid pandemic. Now, before we dive into my chat with David, I wanted to alert you about a new series of mini-sodes with the best behavioural science practitioners in the business that I'm launching right here. They will be coming your way after the summer, and I'm doing this in collaboration with a great partner who I'll announce in the coming weeks. And as you'd imagine, I've got some amazing guests lined up. Well, I'd hope you'd imagine that. Now, more to come on all that. And for now, please enjoy this show. David, welcome to A Load of BS. I'm delighted we've got the chance to chat today. Yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Now, I must say that I found your latest book, The Expectation Effect, extremely absorbing. The capacity for our beliefs to influence outcomes is a subject that I have read around a bit, particularly in food and wine, actually, because their anticipation and ceremony before and during a meal determines, I think, to some extent, one's enjoyment of it and satiation from it. And as you say analogously, I think, in the book. There's only so much, of course, you can dress up a frozen fish finger. Those are my words, not yours to be precise. But at the heart, I think, of the stories that you're telling is the idea that many of our responses in so many facets of our life are a product of our expectations. And I think it's important to say up front that while some of the stories in the book are intuitive, some, you know, really eye-opening and revelatory, all are backed up by robust science. And this is absolutely science nonfiction, not the realm of the paranormal. So actually, let me just actually kick off, in fact, and ask you, I mean, are paranormal beliefs really just based on people's ingrained existing underlying beliefs, which then lead their brain to construct something that appears meaningful? In other words, it's just an expectation effect. Yeah, I mean, that's totally how I kind of see this. So, you know, we know the brain acts as this kind of prediction machine. So it's constantly building simulations of the ways that it thinks the world should be based on its experience and based on the context. And then that kind of completely changes the way it processes the sensory data so that sometimes it can, especially if you're in a kind of ambiguous situation, it can actually seem to create meaning when there is none. So we know that from laboratory experiments, you know, when people are listening to white noise and you tell them they're going to hear a voice or that they're going to hear Bing Crosby singing, they actually do report hearing it. And what's really amazing with that is you can then scan their brains and you can 
kind of see that the processing is almost identical to the processing that you'd see if they actually heard it. So we know that predictive processing is just part and parcel of perception. In the case of paranormal experiences, you know, I think like, say, if you're seeing Jesus in a slice of toast, or, you know, the one I mentioned in my book is people seeing kind of the Holy Spirit in the flames around Notre Dame Cathedral when it caught fire. I think that is just the predictive processing kind of shaping what people believe might happen in that kind of situation. Yeah, it sounds like the, the people in the example that you quote in the book about Notre Dame, the fire of Notre Dame Cathedral, I mean, more likely these were probably very religious people in the first place, or they had some entrenched belief in the paranormal. Going back a step, I mean, you've briefly defined, I suppose, what expectation effects are, but I'm interested, you know, what is much of this sort of new research telling us? What are the indeed the implications of what you're saying in the book? And I'm keen to also understand, you referenced this important concept of the prediction machine, the brain is a prediction machine. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so the expectation effect is this phenomenon where our beliefs become self-fulfilling prophecies through changes to our perception, like I just described, but also through changes to our behavior, which is often neglected, but is really important, and our physiology. So it's actually changing things like the hormonal balance within the body that can then have knock-on effects for our health and well-being. So that's the expectation effect. And the prediction machine is just this idea that the brain is using all of its experiences to try to predict what's going to happen and what it's seeing, first of all, but then what's going to happen in the immediate future. So one of the consequences of that, this change to perception, but actually, obviously, that's going to change things like what we pay attention to within a scene It's going to change like how, you know, what kind of schemas we use to react to it. So it's changing our behavior. And, you know, while the brain's doing this processing, it's also preparing the body. And so that's how it changes our physiology too. So they're very much, you know, the expectation effect comes from predictive processing. So is this research now really challenging afresh our understanding of the limits of the brain's capabilities? Yeah, it absolutely is. And so I think like the placebo effect in medicine has been well known and well studied for decades. But even there, I think we're seeing that astonishing new research that's really looking at how we can apply that and how you can apply expectation effects in medicine without using deception, which was always the big problem with placebo research was that you can observe the phenomenon in the laboratory, but doctors can't lie to their patients. But now we know actually the lying, you know, isn't necessarily, there's loads of ways that you can change people's expectations completely honestly. But then also we've just been seeing like a huge amount of work, like really abundant research in all other areas of life. So we've really taken it from medical settings to kind of fitness in the gym, you know, diet, like you mentioned, you know, sleep, you know, how well we sleep and how well we deal with insomnia and the classroom, you know, and even things like aging. So, you know, even your longevity can be shaped by your beliefs about aging. So, you know, it's really shaping every area of our life. And I always like to think that, you know, to emphasize that whether you kind of know about the expectation effect or not, it's already changing your life. It's already influencing your life all the time. Like even if you're kind of listening to this podcast, it's having an effect on you. I hope so. Yeah, exactly. It's just that by understanding these effects, we can sometimes try to avoid the negative expectation effects that can be limiting. And we can just try to recalibrate our expectations so we can make the most of our potential. I want to come back to placebo, and you perhaps just touched on its uh, sibling, the, the nocebo effect. Let's come back to that. But I just wanted to just dig a little further on the question of why is it that the brain is sort of playing games with us and framing our expectations so influentially? Is it possible to explain this mind-body connection? Are these very adaptive responses, essentially? 
Yeah, they're totally adaptive. And, you know, I think we actually sit throughout the animal kingdom. So we're not the only creature that has this. It's just that with animals, you know, they don't have tools like language or culture that are shaping their expectations. So we have a kind of whole extra level of this. But any animal, like its previous experiences, will be shaping its predictive processing, which will shape its perception, behavior and physiology. So, you know, when you find something that's kind of across the animal kingdom, it has to be adaptive. And that's absolutely the case here. I mean, I think it's just all about, first of all, just for perception, it's just the fact that the data hitting our senses is really poor, actually. So, you know, like um, the retinas are just flat, two-dimensional objects, and we have to kind of create this 3D scene and make sense of that. So you need to use these experiences, previous experiences, and how you know the world works to do that, to make sense of the raw data. Um, So it's necessary for that. I think it's also just really necessary for kind of flexible behavior. You know, if your brain can preempt the kind of challenges it's facing, whether that's kind of food scarcity, whether that's a kind of threat of like a predator coming towards you, or whether it's the challenge of going on a hunt, you know, we need to be able to preempt what's going to happen and prepare our body for that, which explains some of the physiological effects. Similarly, you know, with illness, the body needs to have a kind of head start in some cases to prepare the body for illness, which is where things like the placebo effect and the nocebo effect comes in. Um, So it's absolutely adaptive. And, you know, I just think it's like, it's not magical. It's just part and parcel of the way we work. And actually, I'd like people to get away from this idea that we have this kind of mystical mind-body connection and just accept that it's very much a part of being a human being. Which brings me to a further definition question, and it's perhaps just worth debunking or clarifying connection and indeed differences between expectation effects, what we loosely might call positive thinking, and even the whole mindfulness movement. Yeah, I mean, mindfulness, I think, is quite separate. But I think positive thinking bears some relation to the expectation effect. But I think the way that positive thinking has been presented in the past has been completely ascientific. So, you know, writers like Rhonda Byrne, they might kind of dress it up in this kind of, you know, ideas of quantum entanglement and the law of attraction and, you know, all of these things. But actually, you know, no scientist would really endorse that theory, whereas the expectation effect is very much based on, you know, peer-reviewed research. And it's, you know, it's not asking for some kind of quantum mysticism. It's actually just like physiological mechanisms or behavioral mechanisms that are already really well understood in lots of other different contexts. All that this is showing is that actually the expectations are kind of tweaked tweaking and changing those mechanisms slightly to for better or for worse. So that's where I would say the difference is. I'd also say like when I'm talking about recalibrating expectations, I'm not asking people to believe in the impossible. You know, if you're trying to change your fitness, I'm not saying that you should like imagine that you're like an Olympic athlete. Because actually, I think raising your expectations too high is equally damaging. But what I'm really asking is for us to just reframe and reinterpret situations that's based on the scientific facts, so that it's a bit more objective, so that it's not needlessly negative, so it's not limiting our potential. So it's kind of bringing it up to the middle rather than kind of reaching too high and believing something that just isn't true. So let's turn our attention to the question of how beliefs can transform recovery from illness. I think you touched on that question just a few minutes ago. And you show in the book, you know, we understand that indeed they can transform that recovery. And in terms of pain relief, you write that the brain seems to have its own, in quotes, inner pharmacy, allowing it to create certain chemicals such as opioids on demand. What's fascinating, and this isn't even placebo sham treatments at work, but it seems like it's improvement driven purely by expectation. So I'm wondering how big is the potential then for expectations to affect health outcomes and where are the boundaries? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. The brain does have its own inner pharmacy. So I'm we mentioned opioids and you know you can see that if you give people morphine 
alongside this kind of chemical naltroxone that kind of blocks opioid signaling, and then it reduces the pain relief that you get from the morphine. But what's astonishing is that if you give that chemical alongside a placebo painkiller that's pretending to be morphine, actually that also blocks the pain relief, which suggests it's also blocking the opioid signaling. So that seems to be a kind of direct evidence of this mechanism. And then you can have brain scans that actually, you know, show that you see heightened activity when someone's taking a placebo analgesic, you know, in the areas that we know are involved in opioid signaling. So that's quite solid research. Um, there's also research showing that cannabinoids, you know, which are another form of pain relief, the brain's also releasing endogenous cannabinoids in certain situations. And like you said, it's not just conditioning. Actually, this can be triggered by our expectations. So if you get people to reframe their pain, so if you kind of um, cause uh, kind of ischemia in the muscles by tying like a tourniquet around the muscles, you know, like lots of people do actually before working out to kind of boost the effects of their workout. If you tell people that that pain that they're feeling is actually beneficial to their muscles, then you do see this increased um, release of the uh, endogenous uh, cannabinoids and opioids. So, you know, it's very well established that there are like psychological mechanisms here. There are some definitely some counterintuitive yeah. effects at play. I mean, actually on the placebo, I want to go on to also talk about the nocebo yeah. as well. But what I found really interesting about placebo is that they also seem to have an effect when the patient actually knows it's a sham. So I was just trying to understand, you know, under what conditions the placebos work best. Maybe it's both when the patient mm. is aware and all equally when yeah. they're unaware. You're totally right. I mean, so this is one of the newer discoveries is the use of open label placebos. I think one of the best studies came from Portugal. Um, the researchers kind of took people with chronic pain. Some were just kind of stuck on a waiting list, you know, receiving their normal treatments. Others were given these big uh, jar of pills. They were orange pills, but they were clearly labeled like placebo take two a day. But beforehand, the participants had been told a little about the mind-body connection. They'd been told about the placebo effect, the evidence that I've just described. And so they were given reason to believe that these open-label placebos, despite the fact they didn't contain an active ingredient, that they could still be really beneficial for their pain. And that was exactly what happened over the next few days. These participants really did see like a clinically significant reduction in their symptoms. And then a follow-up five years later actually found that the benefits were still being seen even then compared to the participants who hadn't, you know, received the placebo pills. So there was something very powerful about knowing about the mind-body connection and experiencing it for themselves that had long-lasting effects on their health and well-being. And that's just one example. There are other forms of like expectation effects in medicine that don't even use dummy treatments at all. So people undergoing heart surgery were given psychological therapy where they were asked to kind of optimize their expectations of their kind of prognosis after the surgery. So the therapist, you know, sat down with them, kind of laid out a plan of what they could reasonably expect from the surgery and helped to allay some of their fears about the surgery. And, you know, all of those things that like when you're recovering, you might start to worry about. So they just helped them to kind of process that and remove some of the negative expectations that they might have had about the surgery and its dangers. And that was really effective, improving things like their reported disability six months down the line, how long they spent in hospital, but it also even changed things like the levels of the inflammatory cytokines within their body, which seem to have an effect on all of these kind of outcomes. We know that inflammation kind of rises when we're feeling anxious and it falls if we're feeling relaxed. And that may well be the mechanism here. But just by having that kind of reassurance and helping people not to catastrophize the discomfort they were feeling, there was actually then accelerating the recovery. I mean, on the one hand, I find that reassuring approach is sort of intuitively obvious. What's less obvious and surprising is the physiological consequences of that, which are quite amazing. It's not only perhaps reducing sort of stress levels, but it's having direct consequences on recovery. It's affecting the chemicals in the body, if you like. 
Yeah, exactly. But then I think, you know, like lots of doctors said that a patient's comfort is really important physiologically. But I think lots also neglect that fact. You know, the people who weren't receiving the placebo, I mean, not the placebo, they weren't receiving that psychological therapy. They were still having their normal interactions with doctors who could have reassured them about and they could have given them some of this information. But it seems like they just weren't receiving the reassurance they needed and the kind of psychological tools they needed to process what they were going through, which obviously is pretty traumatic. So lots more to say on placebo, but the other side of the placebo effect is the nocebo effect. Explain what we mean by that and then then what are some of the techniques that we use to minimise it? Yeah, so the nocebo effect is considered the evil twin of the placebo. So it's where our negative expectations can create illness and that's often seen with side effects of drugs. So, you know, all clinical trials of drugs have the placebo, which is then compared to the kind of real active drug. That's how we kind of study the placebo effect. But it also helps us to understand the nocebo effect because those people receiving the dummy pills are also given the usual warnings of the potential side effects. And what you find is that often like a substantial number of people in the placebo arm have all of those side effects. So things like nausea, headaches, you know, fatigue, back pain, all of these things that you might expect to come from the real drug. Now, I experienced that myself and I was put on a course of antidepressants. My doctor told me that one common side effect is that you might experience headaches and migraines. And, you know, I really did experience that. And it felt, you know, it wasn't imagined pain, like I wasn't malingering, like it was a very real headache. And we now know, obviously, that actually when you experience those headaches, it comes from physiological change, just like you see with the placebo effect as well. So in this case, it's changing the expression of kind of neurotransmitters and hormones that can change the vasculature of the brain, which can then in turn cause the kind of pain of the headache. So yeah, nocebo effects are completely real. They're causing a lot of suffering, you know, even if you just considered their effects on the, you know, for drug side effects. But also I think like they're causing kind of our suffering to just be needlessly extended when we are ill with like other conditions. So, you know, you can see we, even with things like concussion, like if people are led to believe that their symptoms are going to linger for longer than they normally would do, that they do actually experience worse symptoms overall. So it's actually, I think the nocebo effect is equally important um, to the placebo effect and that it's actually affecting our well-being in all of these ways and like reducing our comfort during recovery, but also potentially damaging our recovery. I mean, is there an argument that we can use the nocebo effect to our advantage? Illustratively, if we receive these negative side effects, it may indicate the medicine, whether real or not, is working. And there's lots of research around placebo for that, which is, for example, color or shape of pill, price of pill, which all have an impact on the effect. The sense that something sort of tastes disgusting, for example, in other words, that some kind of negative side effect indicates the value of it. Yeah, definitely. I think we have this kind of assumption that you have to like, if there's no pain, there's no gain in some way. So yeah, I think things like a bitter tasting pill probably is more effective than a pill that doesn't taste of anything. But also, I think actually, what I find more interesting is how we can use the kind of direct side effects and not the nocebo side effects, but actually we can use those direct side effects to enhance the effectiveness of a treatment um, to enhance like, how it works. And the example I, I give in my book is of this immunotherapy trial for people with peanut allergy. So, you know, these kids who like have potentially life-threatening allergic reactions to peanuts, giving this kind of immunotherapy, it's almost like a vaccine. You know, you increase the dose incrementally from a tiny amount of the peanut protein until they eventually can eat a whole peanut over about six months. Now, that's not a pleasant process for these kids because often it does come with like mild allergic reactions that can be quite frightening because you worry that it's going to escalate into something that is dangerous. And lots of people drop out of these trials because of that. But these researchers at Stanford just wondered if actually you could reframe the way uh, people interpret 
those kind of side effects of the treatment, those like mild allergic reactions, by telling the, the children that actually it's a form that you're immune system is kind of learning and strengthening. So it's a bit like the aches we get from working out, you know, it's actually maybe uncomfortable, but good for you. And so they did this. And they found that actually, that not only kind of reduced the number of side effects that people experienced, because, you know, they weren't catastrophizing what they were feeling. So it could have been subjective, but we also know it reduced the inflammation in the body, which could kind of exacerbate an allergic reaction. And even more importantly, then this seemed to have a knock-on effect on the effectiveness of the treatment. So they actually had higher levels of these helpful antibodies that can kind of protect you from the full allergic reaction. So it was operating on multiple pathways there, all of them really useful for these kids who are experiencing what could be quite an unpleasant trial. You highlight a number of really interesting cultural differences when it comes to expectation effects. One relating to placebos, which I found fascinating, was that you observed or research had observed that placebos have grown in potency and call it performance versus active drugs, but particularly in the US over the years. Well, what's going on there? Yeah, this is like really puzzling. It has been a huge problem for pharmaceutical companies because essentially it's much harder for them to prove that a drug is effective, even though when the patients are actually taking the new drugs, they're experiencing, you know, a high level of improvement in their symptoms. It's just that people in the placebo groups are also experiencing a very high level, like that's almost statistically indistinguishable. So maybe I can't remember the exact figure, like it's gone from like 23% to 9% or something difference between the two arms. So, you know, it's really shrinking that difference, not because the pills are getting less effective, but because the placebo is getting more effective, its performance is increasing. So yeah, it's like really puzzling. There's loads of possible explanations for that. One is that people's expectations of what the placebo effect can achieve has actually been increasing over time as we have more and more media articles, television programs and books about the placebo effect. So, you know, one researcher from California, he tried to look into this and he did find that you do see that kind of the placebo effect increases very much in tandem with the increased media coverage within the English speaking world, but not within the other countries where the trials were being conducted. So not within European or Asian countries. So, you know, that's one idea. Another is just that America has this direct to consumer advertising, and that's just reinforcing this idea that kind of pills are good for you and that they're going to like reduce your symptoms. And so that is also kind of just enhancing people's expectations. The thing there that's puzzling is why the effects of the real pills, the uh, active pills, hasn't increased as well. It could be that actually they're both, since the placebo and the placebo effect and the pills are potentially using the same mechanisms within the brain, you know, maybe this opioid signaling, actually you reach this kind of threshold where, you know, just more and more of that opioid signaling isn't necessarily useful for reducing your discomfort. Do you think there's a parallel here with antibiotic immunity, that it's become something of a media phenomenon? The more we talk about it and hear about it, the more we expect it to be so. Or is that purely biological? No, I think that's biological, because I think the problem with um, antibiotic resistance is there's the bacteria, you know, the microbes themselves that are becoming resistant. That's not to do with our body's reactions. It's actually that they've developed enough mutations that they can kind of survive even when there's the antibiotics within the body. We won't go down that path of research then that I had attempted there. There's no uh, expectation effect in microbes. Let's not test that. Something that I hadn't thought about, which was also really interesting, was expectation contagion. And there's strong evidence that some nocebo responses, or even what you call these sort of fictional viruses, which people might observe through watching things on TV, can be contagious. So how are expectation effects contagious? Is there some kind of empathy transfer going on here? 
Yeah, so just to explain that example, it was from Portugal in the kind of later 2000s. And these kids just suddenly started being struck by this mysterious virus. It seemed like they were, you know, fainting, they were vomiting, they seemed to be like seriously ill. And it was only restricted to teens. It wasn't like younger children, and it wasn't the teachers or their parents. So it seemed to really specifically be targeting adolescents. The doctors were completely baffled, but then they realised that actually at the same time, just as this started, there'd been this um, soap opera called uh, Strawberries and Sugar in Portugal that had kind of shown this mysterious virus attacking the, the kind of kids in this teen drama. And it just seems that some, you know, maybe a couple of the teens had kind of started to feel really anxious, like what if that happened in real life? And they became ill and then it kind of spread amongst all of their classmates and spread from school to school as the reports kind of hit the media. So, you know, I think like a few hundred children were actually hospitalized because they were so ill, but there was no biological vector there. It was just this idea of the virus that was actually making them sick for a kind of nocebo effect that had passed from child to child and had originated because of this completely fictional drama. So you call this, or scientists would call this, a mass psychogenic illness as opposed to a psychosomatic one. Can you just do a bit of definitions again for us and explain the differences here between these two types of illness, if you like? Yeah, I mean, psychosomatic and psychogenic, I think, are often used interchangeably. And I don't think there is a huge difference between them. But I think the important thing here is that psychogenic is when its origins are completely psychological. Whereas I think psychosomatic could actually refer to something where like you have like a biological kind of active trigger, and then it's kind of exacerbated with kind of psychological mechanisms with expectations. So kind of subtle difference, but I think it's important in these cases. So definitely with this case in Portugal, thanks to strawberries and sugar, that's purely psychological. There's no reason to believe there was any physical vector at all. So are we seeing significant psychogenic reactions in anti-vaxxers, indeed those who've just been vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, this has been known for a long time, you know, with people's reactions to the HPV vaccine, to flu vaccines, that you would often have outbreaks of mass psychogenic illness, you know, often amongst school children where like one child would kind of faint or kind of become very ill as a result of the vaccine. Well, supposedly as a result of the vaccine. And then all of their classmates would fall ill as well through this contagious expectation effect. And then when you actually look at the reasons for that, you know, no one actually showed any kind of allergic reaction to the vaccine. It was all psychological. It was spreading from one person to another. And obviously, the more people you see around you falling ill, the like greater your own expectations that you're going to become ill. So it does become self-perpetuating. You know, I don't know for certain that there's any like strong evidence of this with the COVID vaccines yet. But we do know that in general across the population, actually, even in the, the trials of the COVID vaccines for those who are just receiving kind of salt water, like a placebo, they were actually quite likely to report a lot of the side effects that we know from the real vaccines. So things like fatigue, you know, headaches, all of that. So that was just a classic nocebo response. So it's definitely very relevant there. Now, alongside expectations of our health and well-being, of course, are those of death, the other end of the scale. And again, in the book, you point out that there are records of millions of Americans found that people are more likely to die on or just after a significant occasion than just before, e.g. a birthday. And the research found that death is 4% more likely to happen on a birthday, for example, rather than the preceding couple of days. I mean, what's going on here? I found this very curious. Yeah, you know, it's really difficult to study, but there have been enough studies conducted that it does seem like it's a real phenomenon and it might change from culture to culture. But it's very unlikely that there have been cases where it seems like people have actually died because they were so scared of getting ill that their body actually did kind of trigger a heart attack. 
But this is not quite the case here. What I think is happening here is that people have already got some kind of serious illness that was probably going to be terminal. And it seems like the through like all of these kind of psychosomatic kind of mechanisms that often people can manage to kind of linger on until like this really significant event in their life. And it could be, you know, their birthday, or it could be the new year for children, it's kind of Christmas, they can manage to kind of hold it together until then. And then it's like, the body just kind of gives up in a way. You know, you can't beat terminal illness forever, but you can maybe extend your lifespan by a few days, which is why you see this peak, essentially. But- you cite the example, and it could be considered coincidence, but I think there are th- at least three US presidents of yore who had all died on American Independence Day. Was that right? Was George Washington, Thomas Jefferson? Was It, it was um, Thomas Jefferson, and I can't remember the other two. But yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, this is like an anecdotal data, obviously, but it did seem like too much of a coincidence that they all died. Um, yeah, two of them, I think it was Adams and Jefferson, died like on the same day, the 50th anniversary of independence. And yeah, it just seemed like maybe they wanted to live through to that anniversary. And then they, yeah, like I said, like their bodies kind of just kind of gave up the fight after that point. I mean, maybe this is also analogous with long married couples when one follows the other in death in a very short time period after. Yeah, it's very much like that. And, you know, there's good research showing that that is the case that, you know, in the first month of bereavement, you're kind of significantly more likely to die compared to before or after that. I think it's just undeniable now that our emotions and our mindsets are influencing our health, you know, even to that degree. And again, like some people then take that data to be like as evidence that like the mind can perform miracles and that it can cure, you know, terminal illnesses like cancer. You know, you can actually just shrink a tumour through the power of your mind. Obviously, you can't. For one thing, these are like statistical trends. So like individuals are going to vary completely in their responses. But more than that, it's like it just can't like perform miracles. We're talking about kind of differences in kind of death rates for like a month or so. In that case, we're not talking about kind of completely changing the course of someone's life. So um, I think actually, like, it's important to kind of recognize the limits of what the mind can do as well, even if these do sound like really striking results. Yes. And one of the big messages of the book is that we underestimate the limits of our abilities and staying power. And that's evident in our stamina for exercise, stamina for work, also our ability to carry out our work. So, I mean, in terms of physical stamina, most of us assume that our body has limits on exertion before exhaustion and muscle tiredness. So are we actually setting very artificial barriers on our stamina to stretch our bodies further? I mean, are most of us actually capable of running another 5k if only we can change our very ingrained habits and rituals and as you say in the book unlock our true physiological budget yeah exactly i think that's totally the case so you know i think like lots of people including myself might have had like you know bad experiences at school or whatever where you just felt like you kind of weren't keeping up with the rest of the class you know i was the youngest in my year so I was always like a little bit slower than everyone else. And like, it's very easy to carry that forward into the rest of your life and to assume that you're just not cut out for exercise. And then, you know, scientists at Stanford University have actually tested this idea. They gave people a genetic test, but gave them sham feedback afterwards. So they told them that either they had a positive variant of a gene that would make exercise easier or a negative variant that would make it harder. And then they kind of gave them this kind of measure of endurance. You know, I think they got on a treadmill, kind of measured how long they could keep on jogging, but also measured their body's physical logical reaction. And they found that the expectations were really important in shaping all of that. So, you know, how long they could run, how hard they felt they'd exerted themselves, and then things like the gas exchange within the lungs, whether it, how quickly it was exchanging things like carbon dioxide for oxygen. So, you know, the overall kind of cardiovascular fitness. 
what was amazing with that was that they found that actually some of the measures, the expectations were more important than the genes themselves. So when you were looking at that kind of efficiency of the lungs, you know, the expectations had more of an effect than the actual genes. So there's definitely this strong argument now that our mindsets are really shaping our performance at the gym. Again, you know, let's be realistic. Like you can't just think that you're going to kill a 5K and immediately do that. But I actually think that, you know, shifting our expectations kind of incrementally and just kind of questioning those negative assumptions will kind of put you on a positive trajectory so that, you know, over the course of a month, you'll find that you're actually much more capable of it than you were beforehand. You'll find it more enjoyable. Your performance will have improved. And the fact is, like, I think what a lot of us forget is that everyone can improve their fitness by doing more exercise. You know, that's not controversial, according to the research. And just remembering that fact and forgetting about your baseline, but just focusing on kind of trying to make small improvements each day, that that's a much healthier mindset than, say, going in and just trying to like immediately like run twice as fast as you could have done. It's just much more manageable. You're kind of moving out of your comfort zone. You're proving to yourself that your expectations are really having an effect. And, you know, I've, I've experienced this myself, actually. And, you know, just reframing like the exhaustion you feel while you're running is really powerful. You know, like I changed from like feeling that if I was starting to feel like breathless, that that was like kind of warning sign for me to actually think well, that's where I should be aiming for. Because if I'm experiencing that, then that's when I'm improving like my body's fitness. And just that shift in mindset, changing it from something dangerous to something that's almost like a reward. You know, the research shows that does things like increases the endorphins that you're pumping into your body, you know, giving you that run as high. So it's really beneficial. Even all the accessories associated with exercise, like I think it's common, I say this, it, it feels intuitive, you buy a new pair of running shoes, immediately the expectation of running longer or running faster is there. Sadly, that often wears off after a couple of weeks, right. but it's certainly at the point of purchase, it's there. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's loads of research showing that even some of the banned substances that athletes use, you know, work a lot through expectation rather than a direct effect on the body. And I think coaches have understood this. You know, I give the example of Richard Piron in the Tour de France, who, you know, like his coach gave him just like, I think it was like glucose solution or sugar water, like an injection of that that told him it was like this really potent drug. And he, you know, had the time trial of his life whether that's ethical or not to kind of lead someone to believe they're taking a banned substance, even if they're not, you know, like, I think that's like ethically dubious still. But yeah, it's long been known by athletes. And now science is really showing kind of how that happens and why it's so effective. And then hopefully showing us how athletes could reap those rewards without even risking like the ethical dilemmas that would be involved in that. And I love that example. If only Lance Armstrong was familiar with the expectation effect, it, it could have all turned out so differently. And there's also the other phenomenon I loved was associated with stamina. It was what's called hysterical strength, which feels like this very, again, a very adaptive response to danger in which people can suddenly show sort of crazy strength, normally well beyond their abilities. I just wonder whether you can explain what's going on here physiologically, emotionally, and maybe give some examples of what we mean by this. Yeah, so I can't remember the names, but absolutely, there have been like a string of examples of, you know, like a mother like lifting a car off of, you know, like her child or, you know, like um, teenagers lifting a big like tractor off of their grandpa who'd fallen underneath it to save their lives. And none of these people were like weightlifters who should have been able to do that naturally. But somehow the brain is kind of taking its breaks off of the muscles. So it's recruiting more muscle fibers to allow them to have that strength, you know, only for an instance, but enough for them to be able to actually save, you know, the person they love. Even the, this kind of Hulk cartoon was apparently inspired by one of these cases. You know, what I find interesting with that, like I've only read one paper that's made this argument, but actually what you see is that other primates tend to kind of be able to recruit more of their muscle fibers than humans can. And it's almost like, 
you know, with our advanced brains, we're kind of inhibiting our strength. And what's happening in, with hysterical strength is it's just taking off those breaks. There's also just this argument that we have like all of these kind of placebo effects in sport or expectation effects in sport that we've mentioned. Like one of the reasons that that is effective is because the brain's prediction machine is like working as an accountant trying to work out what kind of physical resources we have. So things like oxygen levels and fuel, you know, and then trying to work out, well, how can we parcel that out? in the best possible way so that we don't risk exhaustion. And that includes things like recruiting muscle fibers. So when we're doing exercise, even if we feel like we can't go any faster, we're actually only recruiting maybe 50% of our muscle fibers at most, even though we could recruit a lot more to kind of give us that final spurt. Um, Because the brain's prediction machine is being conservative, it's always trying to avoid any risk of exhaustion. What's happening with hysterical strength is that those brakes are just being lifted off, that the prediction machine is lifting off its inhibitions just temporarily to allow these people to kind of deal with this kind of desperate situation. I want to switch gear and talk about gender bias and expectations around gender, which is a subject I've explored with our mutual friend, Melissa Hoganboom, on this podcast, in fact. And in the ongoing debate about gender roles and biases, I mean, how big an issue do you think are entrenched expectations? We could call them prejudices in overturning these biases, because from what you say, we're being primed from baby age to believe these stereotypes about gender, which for me, perhaps reflects a cognitive dissonance in, for example, how men intend to behave, what they say versus what they actually do. So my argument, you know, very much like echoes Gina Rippon's Anyone listening should read The Gendered Brain if they haven't already, because it makes the argument much better than I was able to do in this chapter. But, you know, she does explicitly say that a lot of these perceived differences in men and women's abilities are kind of come from this self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, if you have like kids at a very young age, they're surrounded with this culture that's imposing expectations on what they can do and what they should do. So, you know, like a, if a girl is kind of playing with I don't know, like a kind of miniature like engineering set, you know, like Lego or like a science kit, whatever, like adults around them are going to express surprise because it doesn't fit with the culture's script of what a girl should be doing. And then that kind of raises like this, either it just like reduces motivation. So the girl isn't getting the same kind of practice that a boy might in developing those kinds of skills. And it's also kind of creating this anxiety within the girl. You know, she's feeling she's doing something that she shouldn't be doing. And that anxiety could then like limit the performance slightly. And this, you know, develops just over time. So that it becomes something that then shapes, you know, what like exams like girls choose to do at school, what they study at university, what professions they enter. So I find that very convincing. And to me, it is like a culturally imposed expectation effect that's, again, is happening at all kinds of levels. It's, you know, partly changing motivation. It's partly changing the brain's actual processing. It's changing the growth of like, you know, what skills you're actually developing. So yeah, operating at multiple pathways. I mean, these are all huge and fascinating topics, which we could dive into far more deeply. But I would, apart from that's a nice recommendation, that's the gender bias that by Gina Rippon, which is your recommendation to go deeper into that subject. And also there's, of course, my two podcasts with Melissa on a load of bs.substack.com in some shameless marketing, which you can maybe dive far deeper into the subject of gender bias and identity. But let's circle back actually to the subject of food, which is where I started by referencing food-related expectations. And of course, the story here is not that we can, sadly, that we can hide calories by sheer force of will. But actually, there was this sort of central paradox in the research that you present, which is that indulgence is central to healthy eating. So how, in that case, should we think about balanced diet? What's the trick? 
I think like especially in the US and the UK, less so perhaps in countries like France, although they might be changing, there's good evidence of this kind of intuition that we have. And again, it's kind of culturally imposed that healthy does not equal satisfying. It's not tasty. So if you're making a choice, basically, if you're going on a diet and you're only eating like healthy foods, that you're not going to be satisfied by what you eat and you're not going to get pleasure out of what you eat. And then that's obviously kind of exaggerated and amplified by the food labeling. You know, if like um, go to a restaurant and you choose the kind of diet option, like it's often described only in the things that it's missing, you know, low fat, low calories, low carbs, you know, it's described as being sensible. It's not like described as being sumptuous and delicious and luxurious like the other foods. And what the research shows is that this can have a real effect on kind of how we experience the food afterwards. So we know when we eat that we do have kind of uh, sensory signals coming from the gut that do help us to estimate how much we've eaten and whether we should be full or not. But it's like really poor, you know, rough kind of signaling. So the brain, like in all perception, has to use its kind of experience and expectations and memories to kind of decide kind of how to interpret those signals. And what's happening is that if you eat a food, but you expect it to have been like a, you know, healthy meal that's kind of lacking in calories, lacking in satisfaction, your interpretation of what you've eaten is going to be that you've eaten a lot less, that you're less satisfied and that you're going to feel hungrier later. And then that's what happens. It is like a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. Then the research shows that also that can affect the hormonal response to the food as well. So you can see differences in things like the hunger hormone ghrelin, so that stimulates appetite. And if you've been told that you've drunk a milkshake, that it's like a health shake with just like 190 calories, you actually see um, much higher levels of ghrelin after you've eaten. So it's still stimulating your appetite, telling you to eat more food. Whereas if you've been told that exactly the same milkshake is kind of luxurious and decadent and like a real treat, full of ice cream and, you know, rich milk with a delicious chocolate flavor, all of that is emphasized, actually, you see much lower levels of ghrelin. So the body's responded as if it has actually eaten like a big full meal that should be satisfying. There's also research showing that it changes things like how quickly the food even moves through your gut, your expectations can have that effect too. So it all adds up to a real different response to the food. And for dieters, if you're kind of you've got high levels of ghrelin, and the food's kind of going through your system a lot more quickly, you know, that's really counterproductive. It's making you feel hungrier. You're going to like find it much harder to kind of resist snacking later on. You know, it's probably the reason why lots of people just give up on their diets after a few weeks, because it's too hard to maintain when you have those expectations. Yeah, these are tricky paths to navigate, which is perhaps why the diet and nutrition industry is so incredibly lucrative. And one could be tempted to boil the whole thing down to eat a little less and exercise frequently. And if you do that, you're probably okay. But there's lots of fascinating framing going on, as well as different sort of signals from the brain in terms of expectation and memory to the way in which food is, of course, labeled. And when food is labeled healthy, obviously, actually, they can still be full of sugar. So we have to be careful as consumers of all these sorts of framing tricks. I'm conscious of time. And although there was so much more we could dive into, but let me just ask a final question before we go into the quick fire. What's your next big project? What are you working on now? So there's a video book that's coming out soon. So it's like an audio book, but we've kind of recorded film interviews with me and the researchers that I cite for my first book, The Intelligence Trap. So that's coming up with lit video later in the year. So I've just filmed the interviews for that. Yeah, that's the main one. I'm kind of continuing my journalism. So writing for the BBC and The Guardian and New Scientist magazine. So yeah, lots going on. Fantastic. Shall we wrap up with some quick fire? Sure. Is the correct answer. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? 
there's so many. I mean, actually, one of the benefits of writing a book, I think, is that you're often surprised by how kind and generous people are. But yeah, one specific event, you know, like I'm a big believer in everyday acts of kindness. And I just remember one time when I was like going through like a lot of like tough stuff in my personal life. And then it was pissing it down. I was on my commute to work, just like a lady just offered to like, let me use her umbrella as we crossed the road. And like I went to my office and, you know, she didn't know what I was going through. Actually, that small act of kindness just made a huge difference to me and really helped. So yeah, that would be my example. What's your most powerful memory? It's a weird one, but I keep on having flashbacks to it when I was just like playing around, like doing, I was a little kid, like five doing like, you know, DIY in the house, like, you know, just sawing wood and stuff. And I cut my finger really badly. And I don't know why, but I keep on having like flashbacks to that. Now I'm thinking how close I was to actually like cutting off my finger. So there's something about that experience that I should have just forgotten about, but it's still there. Still lingering. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Yeah, that's a tough one. One of my best experiences was interviewing Bjork about her album Biophilia. Oh, cool. A sideline to your scientific work. Nice. Which book do you gift most regularly? I do give a lot of books for presents, but I tend to like actually just give, you know, make personal choices based on that person. So I'm not sure, maybe Alice Munro's short stories, like I would pick different collections for different people. But yeah, she's the author that I would be most likely to give to people. Nice. What's your desert island music? Oh, wow. Yeah, there's so many. There'd have to be a Kate Bush song there because she was so important to me when I was a teen. Joanna Newsom, her album Have One On Me would be essential. There'd have to be like a Joni Mitchell album there too, probably Blue or maybe just her greatest hits. Yeah. Lovely. And lastly, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? So I have partly because of understanding the power of the expectation effect at the gym. Like I probably, that is my biggest pastime now. It's annoys my partner quite a lot, actually. But it's like, you know, when he's like ready for like a gin and tonic, <laughs> often be like heading to the gym or I'll do like a kind of high intensity workout at home to kind of try to relax a bit after work and just to kind of act as a punctuation mark before I head into the evening. So Yeah, yeah. while well, he sits uh, guiltily sipping his g and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with that, David, let me thank you so much for joining me today. It's the real life application of BS that I'm most interested in in these podcasts. And I think today you've debunked various conventional wisdoms about how the world works, how the mind works, perhaps, and and unlocked the door to a host of very practical ways within all our reach, which we can test and so lead hopefully happier, more fulfilled and healthy lives. And as you say, importantly, there are no silver bullets, of course, but how exciting, nevertheless, to discuss this cutting edge research on how the brain works. So thank you so much, Dave. No, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. My great pleasure. Guys, I don't think we're ever going to eat, train, work or take pills in the same way ever again. Perhaps best not to overthink it all and live for the moment. Now, as always, thank you to all of you leaving reviews and sharing these stories on Twitter and with friends. If you like a load of BS, please support me by leaving a review wherever you listen. And if you haven't done already, do subscribe to my Substack page where you'll find all my pods and articles at aloadofbs.substack.com. Next time, I'm talking to the wonderful and energetic Brie Williams. Brie is an Australian behavioural scientist who I love talking to for her limitless enthusiasm and because she's the first guest who actually asked me some questions. So that got me thinking. I think you're going to love her. Keep enjoying the British weather for those of you here in the UK. Until next time.